Christmas season, but instead the beginning of the season of Advent, a four-week season in the church calendar that signals or marks the beginning of the Christian New Year. So today we could say to you, Happy New Year. A temptation for many of us is to sprint and rush to the manger scene at the close of the Thanksgiving meal with Christmas movies already beginning to play and Christmas music on WMAG here in Greensboro, now called Mix, but forever it was called WMAG. But Advent forces us to walk to wonder, and to wait. We do not rush. We do not sprint to the manger scene moment. But we walk, we wonder, and we wait. The word itself, Advent, comes from a Latin word, Adventus, which means arrival or coming. And it is in this set-apart period of time that we, as the collective people of God all around the world, get to examine and take note of our deepest longing for the arrival or the coming of Jesus, the King. Not just at Bethlehem, but also the end of the age as well. The consummation and renewal all things at the end of history. In fact, throughout the tradition of the church, Advent has been primarily focused on the coming God of justice at the end of time. Maybe not so coincidentally, and not to trigger you, but the very last verse of Ecclesiastes speaks of God coming with judgment of every good and evil deed. So it is both the first coming of God in Bethlehem, as well as, and may we not forget, his second coming also, reminding all of us that we live in the present moment now in the in-between Or as the poet W.H. Auden says in his famous Christmas oratorio, the time being. The now and the not yet. We live in an overlap of what has happened and what will happen. And in some way, the believer's whole life, our entire existence, is lived and defined by Advent. And it is in this season that we wait with expectation, exercising hope for all things to be made right. 
And the reason that we wait expectantly for this great light to be fully realized is because there is great supernatural darkness and evil in the world. Violence, war, brokenness, injustice, pain, suffering, trauma, sickness, disease, loneliness, polarization, outrage, fear, and death. We look around and we know that the way it is is not how it should be. And it is in this season that we recognize the darkness of our world and we move ever so slowly into the light. We acknowledge that something about the world in which we live is fundamentally askew and off. Some have argued that the primary emotion for uh, modern Americans is that of disappointment. Disappointment. Sadness or displeasure caused by the non-fulfillment of one's hopes or expectations. Despite educational advancement, Despite the elimination of mass poverty to, to a, a, a vast degree, despite technological progress, despite possibilities in our hands, we feel a sense of disappointment, a sense of sadness. Because for whatever reason, the up and to the right narrative doesn't match with reality. But could it be that our universal disappointment is actually due, not primarily to unfulfilled expectations, but rather due to a misplaced hope? Placing our hope in the wrong things that were never going to come through to begin with. I've always gone back to Proverbs 13, 12. It's a verse I think that you could store away in your back pocket or in the back of your mind. It says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. The Hebrew word for sick can also mean weak, grieved, wounded, or diseased. And Advent has a unique way of reminding us of this misplaced, dislocated, misguided hope. Slowing us down to re-acknowledge it by asking us the question in this season, at the darkest time of the year might have you, in the midst of our disappointments, in the midst of failed expectations, where does your hope lie? Advent forces us to ask this question of ourselves. Where does your hope lie? What is it that you place your hope, your ultimate hope 
in. All the while, it seeks to reorient us by way of historical reminder of an event in history. The God of justice, the God who will make all things right in the end, fulfill all longing of healing, renewal, and restoration at the end of time, took on flesh at the center of time. The one who will come at the end to flip the upside down world right side up actually stepped into the center of human history. Wishful thinking and careless optimism haunted by misplaced hope transformed into a grounded, think about that, a grounded hope because of the arrival of the God of the universe into a humble feeding trough behind a Motel 6 in Bethlehem. A seed from the future planted into the womb of a young girl who can trace her lineage back to two in the garden. Fleming Rutledge uh, is an Episcopal priest and writer and theologian, and she has a phenomenal rich book on Advent. If you're looking for something to read during this season, I encourage you to read Fleming Rutledge's Advent book. Listen to what she has to say. The rhythm of the church's seasons turns out in this, as in so many other ways, to be theologically profound. If we began with the nativity and then moved to the last judgment, we would be so softened up by that little baby in the manger that we wouldn't be able to take the second coming of Christ in power seriously. The solemnity and awe do not lie in the fact that the baby becomes the eternal judge. What strikes us to the heart is this. The eternal judge, very God of very God, creator of the world, the Alpha and the Omega has become that little baby. We ache and we recount. We wonder and we hope. We look forward and we look back. We ponder and we pray. We doubt and we anticipate. We cry and we dream. We beg and we believe. We wait, and yet we walk. He came, and he is coming. Welcome to Advent. Holy Father, Son, and Spirit, we thank you for this Advent season. Prepare our hearts for how you want to speak and reveal yourself over the next four weeks in the darkness that lies within us in our innate need for a transcendent hope, for all things to be made right. Fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit today, we ask. In Jesus' name, we pray. And everyone said, amen. Most of you have probably never heard of the uh, 1960s uh, funk and soul band, The Winstons. Uh, or one of their songs entitled Amen, Brother. But there is a good chance that you have heard at least six seconds of that song played in another song. That is because Amen, Brother 
is considered to be the most sampled song by other recording artists and producers of all time, almost double than the next one in line. A six-second drum solo starting at 1 minute 27 seconds has appeared in over 6,000 other songs. The most famous was Straight Outta Compton. In other words, might be a different song, but there is a familiar sound. Keep in mind, not just sampled by various hip-hop artists, like Lupe Fiasco, Chance the Rapper, or Tyler the Creator, but also David Bowie and Skrillex. Does anybody like Skrillex? <laughs> no one's admitting that this morning because it's not 2010. John begins a poetic 18-verse prologue starting off with a sample from Genesis 1.1 that rings through the entire story of God in the beginning. Now, this phrase certainly strikes me. I would imagine it strikes you too if you sat long enough and thought about it. And if we consider the phrase, it has a few implications for us to consider today. The first is that the phrase, in the beginning implies a story. The moment someone says, in the beginning, it automatically is assuming a narrative, a story. And a story implies an author, a writer, a creator, a producer. Secondly, it implies the story has already started in the beginning. And thirdly, it implies the story is going somewhere. And with our curiosity, piqued by familiarity and memory, John says, not just in the beginning, but in the beginning was the word. Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning, God. John, being a Hebrew man who knows the Genesis account like the back of his hand, is doing something masterful. John is a phenomenal writer doing something so brilliant here. He is now connecting the Hebrew creation account to a Hellenistic and Greek philosophy-informed world by using a word out of their own intellectual vocabulary and understanding of how the world was sourced and how it worked. The Logos. Logos is translated as word. But it was commonly representative, this is deeply important, of both the origin and the very essence or purpose of life itself. 
the beginning, the origin, and the very essence of life. This idea and this word logos connotes a few things at the same time. It's kind of semantic range. Divine reason, most importantly. Rationality. Cosmic organization. Plan. Order. And guess what? Coming out of Ecclesiastes. Meaning. When we consider the intricacies of how life works down to the molecules and chemicals that make up life. And, and all of a sudden, we're able to turn bread into a meal, a meal into a community. We take raw materials and make them beautiful. There's something behind it all. Flowers, pollination, bees, honey, and now dessert, praise God. There is some sort of divine reason behind the way in which the world works intricately woven together. There is eternal meaning in this world, beginning with the logos. Now remember with me, in Genesis chapter 1, six times it says, and God said, and God said, all of the creation, all of the material world was brought into existence by God speaking a word. God opening his mouth and with a word came creation. This is a very important principle for us as image bearers. What you say the words that you use have the ability to do two things, to create and build or to utterly destroy. And it is much easier for us to destroy than it is to build. That's why you need five affirmative statements for every one negative statement for the sake of your self-esteem and ego. Your words matter. If you ever get an inkling out in public to just compliment a random stranger, do it. Seriously, the other day that Jordan and I, we were in the line at Zaxby's. Because we're on a health kick. <laughs> Sam is discipling me. And the young girl through the speaker box was on it. She was rattling off our order. Boom, 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 boom. This was not Chick-fil-A. This was Zaxby's. I was not expecting perfection. And I got it. By a 16-year-old girl in the drive-thru. And I got up to that window, rolled up. And I looked at her. And I said, I just want you to know, ma'am, my wife said, you just crushed that. You did a killer job. You're doing so well. Her face just lit up. She's like, that's why I need a raise. <laughs> I could have not said anything, but I chose to say a very small thing to this young girl, a compliment, and it changed, I think, her whole demeanor. Word at the beginning of time, creating all that we see and can touch and experience. 
Yet, our English translation in John 1 has the word capitalized. If you notice it, it's a capital W. Then we realize, oh, yeah, this is actually a biographical account of Jesus of Nazareth called the gospel. John is personalizing and giving a proper pronoun to the logos. It isn't just abstract divinity. Logos is now a person. The Logos is Jesus, the Son of God, himself. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. Not only is Word capitalized, but it says the Word was with God. That assumes relationality, community, and personhood. Rocks aren't with. Flowers aren't with. People and humans are with. Persons are with. And the person Jesus, the human Jesus, was with God in the beginning in an invisible realm. And the word also was God. Not just with, but was. It doesn't say from the beginning. It says in the beginning. The word was with God, relationality, and the word was God, divinity. He was with God, not from the beginning, but in the beginning. He was there before it all began. So here's what this means. Jesus, who is the embodiment of God, the embodiment of the word, the embodied son of God, not only is divine reason, but is himself in nature and in essence God. He was also with God. And because he was with God, not only assumes relationality, but also assumes that he knows the cosmic plan. He was in the locker room. He knew what was going to happen. He knew the desire, the will, the design of God, the Father. And he was already existing at the beginning of the story. So the one who arrives in the flesh in podunk, Bethlehem, Northeast Randolph County. <laughs> Through the groaning and pains of childbirth, given by a virgin teenage girl in a barn out back, not at Cone Health, not a doula, but a donkey. <laughs> the one who arrived is God and has existed for all of eternity with God. And oh, by the way, is the source and the meaning and the reason of all life in the universe. If you get nothing today, I want you to know, all of life, not just human life, all of life, bios, comes from Logos. All of the bios comes through the Logos. All bios, all life is sustained by the Logos. And all life, all bios 
points to the Logos, comes through, is sustained by, and points to. He, Jesus, the Son of the living God, is the Logos. Verse 3 of John 1 says, Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. Paul has a very similar sentiment, Colossians chapter 1, a brilliant couple of verses. Colossians 1, 15 through 16, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, or the preeminent one, the superior one. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things, all things have been created through him and for him. Not just through him. Everything was created for him. This presents for us the fact and reality theologically that the Son is both the Word and the image of God. When we say Word of God, I want you to know, friends, we are primarily talking about Jesus, the Christ, the Logos. He is the Word, and He is also the visible image of God, the meaning of God, and the mark of God the icon of God, the character of God. He is the very brand of God, image and word. But it is the invisible word that precedes the visible image because the invisible word has existed for all of creation in an invisible world. And it is the word that is the mechanism and agent of creation we're getting real theological today, but I'm pretty sure you can all handle it. This reveals a very important formational construct for us as believers as it pertains to having a clear sense of theology. Why does that matter? Because our ideas about reality dictate how we live in reality. We have to have a proper understanding in order to know how to properly live. This reveals to us that seeing isn't believing, but hearing is believing. Listening is the mark of obedience, not seeing. Plenty saw Jesus, but they didn't necessarily listen to him. They saw the image, but they did not listen to the word. Trusting the invisible is the stamp of faith. Not that it can't be made evidenced through the visible world, but faith is about trusting in the invisible. The incarnation itself is the word becoming visible, the word becoming and made flesh. Jesus says in John 20, later in this gospel account, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have what? Believed. John 10, he says, his sheep follow him. Regarding the shepherd, 
because they what? Know his voice. As we listen and as we obey, the word is then incarnated in us and imaged out into the world. The word is like a seed planted in us that grows out. The seed is not seen, but it is eventually manifested by way of an image. But as we listen, we receive, and then we image that reality into this world. And in a visually top-heavy world, Jesus provides us the proper balance and arrangement of word and image. Everything in which we do in a postmodern world is oriented primarily around what we see, what we can touch, what we can feel. But I want to argue that it is word preceding image, invisible into visible. Let me give you an example. An entrepreneur might understand this. If an entrepreneur creates something in this world, it first began an invisible conscience in an invisible space. Rationality precedes existence. Word precedes image. You tracking with me this morning? Good. Back to the parallel in Genesis 1. We're kind of going back and forth. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2, now the earth was formless, I don't like that word. I don't think it's actually very helpful for what's happening. It actually means it was blank or void, or the text eventually says empty. Blank canvas. And then from that point on, over the next few verses, we see a very important idea and word that occurs, and it gives clarity to the notion of creation, quote unquote. Five times in the creation account, the word separate or separated, is used. Five times. This word separate or separated occurs. So that tells us that God is doing something very specific at the beginning of time. The word is doing something very specific at the beginning of time. God isn't just blindly or haphazardly creating. It's much deeper than that. And both the Hebrew word created and the Greek word for made in John 1.3 alludes to this specific approach to creation. Something I was never taught growing up in the church. In creation, God is bringing order. Order. He is bringing organization, harmony, and rhythm to the cosmos. The Greek word for made in John 1.3 can also mean assembled. And all of you go to that piece of furniture you got from Ikea that took six hours. Now, some of us um, don't mind looking at the instructions. It's fine. We'll look at it. We'll submit ourselves to the instructions given. We'll follow them. Sometimes they're helpful, sometimes they're not. Others of us say, forget about it. I don't need instructions. I'm going to do it my way. And then you end up with a wobbly table beside of your bed that you're afraid to put anything above about five pounds on because it might collapse. Why? Because there's actually an order given to you for how that table is supposed to function. 
And God didn't just create a table. He assembled it and ordered it in a proper way. This is why we see another word throughout the creation account. It's the word good. Each time God creates something, he says it's what? It's good. What is coming into existence is functioning in proper order. The word good is dynamic. It can, it can increase in terms of quality and betterment. But what good has to do with primarily is if something is functioning in the way it was meant to function. If you have a washer or dryer and it's good and it's working properly, but the moment it stops working, you're like, it's no good. Goodness has to do with proper function in order, in organization. When you do something good, it is because you're doing something as a human being that you were intended to do. Out of who you are and how you were created by God. He's not just creating, he's ordering and organizing. Now John Walton, who's an Old Testament scholar uh, from Wheaton College, articulates, and I love this, that what Genesis 1 is capturing isn't the details of a house being built, but a home being made. You need to write that down. That is a brilliant metaphor for the creation story. It is not about details regarding how a house is being built, but rather a picture of a home being made. Now, when you move into a house, it doesn't become a home until things are in order. Does it not? It is just a blank canvas of non-order. Not disorder, but non-order. And when you move in to a house, apartment, townhouse, whatever it may be, you begin to give function and order to the various rooms of the house by way of furniture, separating items and even separating spaces. This is going to be the dining room. This is going to be the living room. This is the kitchen. This is the bathroom, which that's helpful because some of that stuff's already there. Praise God, right? But some of us might go, you know what? They use this as a dining room, but I'm going to turn it into a den. You give some sort of direction, or you have a little deck out back. You say, no, 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 no. I'm going to turn that into a covered sunroom. You're giving and separating, you're giving order and separating rooms based on function and desired way of living in the home. You're turning it into a home. Now, if you remember, I mentioned at the beginning that Logos meant divine reason and source but also means order and organization. So John is now in the center of history with the incarnation, God made flesh, Emmanuel, saying, Josh from Nazareth, the carpenter's son, was not just the mechanism for creating life, but also the mechanism for ordering, organizing, and assembling how life is to function. Thank you, Dr. D. 
how a home is to be inhabited. He is the mechanism of order and the mechanism of organization for how life is to function. Jesus, and I knew this all along, was a designer of sort. He was a carpenter, an artist on earth. Does that not point to something cosmological, theological? Yes, he's rabbi, but he's carpenter, he's builder, he's creator, he's craftsman. He knows about function, how things are to be built, order, following plans. He's the mechanism of order and organization in the cosmos. And if DNA is the book of life, or some say ingredients of life, the word turns life into a story. He turns DNA into a narrative. And also turns it into, guess what? A meal. He turns the ingredients into communion. Making Jesus both the author of the story and now because of the incarnation, the word becoming flesh, the protagonist in the story. The author becomes main character in the story. The chef of life and the bread of life. It's utterly remarkable. It's brilliant. If that does not captivate you today, I genuinely am not sure what will. It is fascinating. The chef becomes the bread of life. Life itself turns it into a story. And what John is doing is making this not just the climax of Israel's story, which it is, the climax of the story of Israel in the Messiah, but it's also now becoming the climax of the cosmic story of all of the created world. Colossians 1.17 says, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the unifying principle of all of life, visible and invisible, the sustainer and the organizer of all things. He was Marie Kondo before Marie Kondo. <laughs> the ones that are laughing really hard need some organization in their life because they know. The ultimate organizer was Jesus. He makes things work. He's the glue. All things flow through him. Very similar to how all things flow through Morgan Harvey at Emmaus. She holds it all together. If something is happening in this community, she knows about it. She's probably a part of it. Everything flows through her. I'm not calling her Jesus or God. I'm using a metaphor. Because she'll run with that later on, I promise. <laughs> you said I was like Jesus. Metaphorically. The unifying principle, sustainer, organizer of all things, flowing through him. Now, one of my favorite parts of elementary school was going to specials. Was that anyone's favorite part of the, of the week? You know, going to music, right? Playing the recorder. Hello. It's great. Um, PE class. For some of you, you loved it. Others of you, it's the most shameful experience of your entire elementary experience. Especially when you had to do the physical fitness test. Pull-ups? Forget about it. Some of y'all stepped up. Nope. <laughs> Step right back down. Others were like, look at me. I'm like, yes, you weigh 50 pounds, man. Jeez. 
Computer Lab. You remember Computer Lab? Uh, I don't know what you know games you guys played. Hot Dog Stand, Paul's in Typing Town. I don't know. That's what we played. Paul's in Typing Town. And uh, Computer Lab was great. But we also had art as well. And in Mrs. Wright's art class in the third grade, I remember she had a very specific rule in her class. She would pass out sheets of paper for us to draw, free draw. But if you thought you messed up on that drawing, you were never allowed to get a new sheet of paper. Made me so frustrated. And I was a pretty good little artist, I'm not going to lie. But she would always say, if you thought you messed up, turn what you have drawn and make it into something new. Some of you, to, to kind of make it personal, maybe you got a tattoo in your human experience and you're like, why did I ever get a bowberry biscuit on my thigh? <laughs> it is not to remember the goodness of God and to testify of his deliverance, or maybe it is. But you're thinking, I got to turn this bowberry biscuit into something profound and theological. And it is fascinating to go online and look at all of these tattoos that have gone awry and become beautiful. Go do it. Very similar kind of experience. If that's your experience, we're going to have time at the altar after for you to pray and to confess whatever tattoo you have that you regret. But at the center of human existence and the unfolding of life that had been going on since Genesis 1, marred by Genesis 3 and disorder, God arrives in flesh, the word in human form. So why might the mechanism of order and life become flesh? To renew order and organization to a disordered, disorganized, and chaotic world. What theologians call the new creation. But notice the trajectory. The trajectory is not from earth to heaven. Though some of us have been taught this, the trajectory is heaven to earth. It is not going up, but rather it is coming down. Instead of eliminating the mess, he enters into it. Instead of crunching up the sheet of paper and getting a new sheet, he uses what has been drawn. Reshaping it and redirecting the direction of the painting. Like a Bob Ross painting that looks like a jumble of chaos. And all of a sudden turns into a snow-covered cabin in Colorado with happy little trees all around were you not ever fascinated with how Bob Ross went from that to this? That's what God is doing in the cosmos. The climax of God's redemption is not destruction of the created world. He will destroy sin and evil, but not the created world. Nowhere does the scriptures speak of destroying the world as we know it. 
but God, inaugurating the process of renovation and transformation moves us toward a renewed creation. A reconstruction, you might say. The theologian Craig Bartholomew says this. I'm going to get the band to come on up. Today, some Christians believe that Jesus came to enable us to escape this creation and live eternally in an otherworldly and heavenly dwelling. Such an understanding of salvation would have been entirely foreign to Old Testament prophets, to first century Jews, and to Jesus himself. This is an important theological concept as we consider our life in the material world. Salvation is not an escape from creational life into spiritual existence. It is the restoration of God's rule over all of creation and all of human life. We are not going to evacuate this place. Heaven is, in fact, not our home. Earth is. And heaven is coming down. When you read Revelation 21-22, it is of a city restored coming down. The creation story, my friends, did not end in Genesis 3 and start over with the fall of man. We are in the creation story even now. There is still non-order being ordered. And yes, there is disorder that entered into the story. And God stepped into human history, the organizer of all of life, to bring order to the disorder and for us as image bearers, as priests, to continue our work of bringing order to a non-ordered world, carrying ourselves into the new creation. So when we read in the beginning, we aren't reading an entirely new story in John 1 as though it has all started over. But rather, we are witnessing in the language of J.R.R. Tolkien a eucatastrophe or a sudden surprising turn toward good fortune, toward hope. A small star hovering above a stable, foreshadowing the light of the world entering into the darkness. Word becoming image. That image that we are now as humans being conformed to by way of the Spirit through listening and obeying, our lives are being reordered, reorganized, and regenerated, giving witness to this redemptive climax and foreshadowing the ultimate resolution at the end of time. And it isn't an escape to some far-off place. It is heaven coming down restoration of all things. Why is it that we pray on earth as it is in heaven? Because that is who told us how to pray. That's what Jesus told us how to pray. The organizer of life, the word, told us to pray on earth as it is in heaven. And because it had a beginning, we hope for the end. My duty, friends, in teaching and preaching every single week is to reshape your imagination. So we take this story with this goal very seriously. 
So here is an exercise in hope amidst the darkness and disorder. The final words of Jesus in the scriptures, Revelation 22, filled with a promise and a prayer. The final words of Jesus in Revelation. Yes, I am coming soon. That gives me something to shout about today. He didn't just come. He is coming again. He gave us a promise and said, I am coming again. And because he resurrected, we actually have hope. Because he's done it, he will do it again. It's not wishful thinking today. It's not just about optimism. It's about because of what has happened, we are hoping and believing that he will see us through to the end. There is expectation for the renewal of all things. There is expectation for injustice to be dealt with. There is expectation for rightness and righteousness to fill the earth. There is expectation for light to fill the darkness. There is expectation for order to come out of disorder, for beauty to come from ashes. And we are a living testimony of that because some of us came out of a disordered experience. A broken experience. And he's bringing order in your life just as he is in the cosmos. That's what Advent is about. We sit on the edge of our seat waiting in expectation. And we pray, come Lord Jesus. Maranatha. Come Lord Jesus. It's the final words of the story. That's our prayer. We say, let it be so that you are coming soon. Amen. And amen. And we pray, come Come, Lord Jesus. Two thousand years later, we say, Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. we anticipate his second coming is by coming to the table. A picture of the marriage supper of the Lamb. Because when he comes, he will eradicate evil. And we will celebrate in the greatest party ever known to human history. And the table is a foreshadow of that party. Let's read this liturgy together as we go to the table. Our Lord Jesus Christ.